be seated. When we, come, when we come to church together each week, we bring with us fears, needs, longings, hopes for the future, disappointments. And when we come here into the presence of God, we meet an astounding claim, and that is everything that we bring with us is fulfilled in knowing God, revealed in his son to us. All the things that we want and long for and hope find their fulfillment in what God has given us in Jesus. As we've just sang together, what we want is to know God's presence in our lives. But there is a problem with that. Because if you have ever been in the presence of a truly beautiful person, it tends to make you feel a little shy. It makes it hard to look up. You look down at the ground. You feel this sense of shame, and how much more so in the presence of God who is infinitely perfect and majestic and holy and beautiful. And so, friends, in the presence of this God, we cannot just come asking for more good. We have to come acknowledging that we all need to turn around, that we need to put away the things that are sinful and ugly in all of us. And the good news is that God has brought us here, turning his face toward us, lifting our gaze to see again Jesus. So, friends, in the presence of this God, who has made his forgiveness known to us, Would you join me in this prayer of confession? Let's say together. Often, O holy and righteous God, we dare your justice, mock your mercy, jeer your patience, slight your power, and show contempt for your love. We even say, I'm sorry, insincerely, and confess confess our sin flippantly. We plead your help to own up carefully to how we have wronged you, to admit honestly how we have grieved you, to plead penitentially for your mercy and pardon. We beg your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Let's take a minute to make those words our own.
presence of God, God meets us with good news of his forgiveness. This comes from uh, 1 John chapter 1. This is the message that we have heard from God and proclaim to you. God is light and in God is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, this is the good news. Thanks be to God. God doesn't just bring us here to meet needs, but also to send us out as a people being changed in that good news. And so here now, God's guide for our grateful living of our response of joy and gratitude to him. As we are to walk humbly with our God in lives of gratitude, let us hear again his word, his call to us. God commands us to serve him alone as God, to serve him according to his word, to speak of him only with deep respect and love, to attend faithfully the assembly of God's people on the day of rest and every day to let the Lord work in us through his spirit, to respect and cooperate with all God-given authority, to nurture human life as God's precious gift, to live holy and chaste lives, to use the resources of this earth as stewards of God's creation, to use the gift of speech for promoting the truth in love, and to exercise purity of heart in all of life. Friends, let's say together, may the Spirit of God guide us to be obedient to this word. Amen. Would you rise and let's sing together.
It's in the peace of that consolation that we receive from his forgiveness that, friends, I can say to you, the peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Let's greet each other with that peace as well. Good morning. My name is Emily. I'm one of the elders here at Pleasant Street, and it is my privilege to lead us in prayer this morning. Let us go before our God. Almighty Father, we come before you on this beautiful spring morning, the birds chirping and the buds emerging on the trees, reminding us of your amazing and complex creation. We thank you for this gift of prayer that we can approach the God of the universe with our concerns and requests. Dear God, as vaccination rates increase and COVID numbers start to fall, we are happy to see familiar faces back in church. But be with those who still can't join us in person. Help them to feel a part of the body despite the distance. We thank you for the technology to be able to stream our service so that those who aren't here in person can still participate. 
Dear God, we also lift up those in our congregation who are struggling with health issues. We think especially of Matt and Julie's daughter, Carrie, who's, who will have surgery on, for a brain tumor this week. We also ask you to be with Mark as he goes in for a heart procedure later this week. We ask that you comfort those who have recently lost loved ones, be especially with Judy and her family. She mourns the loss of her father this past week. And dear God, our hearts are heavy as we hear of more mass shootings this week in Indiana in Wisconsin. We ask you to bring healing to the wounded and comfort to families who have lost loved ones. And we mourn the loss of Dante Wright and ensuing protests in Minneapolis. Dear God, we pray for peace and reconciliation. Be with our president and legislatures as they govern and create laws during turbulent times. Give them wisdom and the ability to reach across divides to do what is best for our country. Despite the brokenness and despair that we see around us, we know that our world belongs to you, Sovereign Lord. You are our hope and our salvation. Help us to turn toward you, not only during the worship service today, but during the week ahead. May we be salt and light to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we'll be reading Acts 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 2, and then 44 through 53. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit, gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
the God of glory, appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Aaron. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As a prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fairlawn says hi. <laughs> Friends, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, on Good Friday, everything good about you went into the tomb with you, and we were in despair. This Easter season, we remember that the tomb is open, and everything about you is more true than we can imagine. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. Send your Holy Spirit to us now, O God. Please make your resurrection spiritually real to our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see, and seeing understand, and understanding believe, and believing that we might follow in all faithfulness and obedience in the way that you have made for us through your body. Amen. On Easter Sunday, we left the women as they left the empty tomb, and we pick up where we left off. They came carrying spices for a dead body that morning, but they left carrying something even more fragrant and powerful. They left carrying news. News that Jesus had been brutalized, tortured, crucified, speared, and buried, but was not dead but alive. All of the gospel writers tell us that the first people to hear about this astonishing news and the first people to see Jesus are women. And that is significant because in their world, nobody trusted women to convey anything of importance with credibility. I think it was the ancient historian Josephus who once said, that the reason that women couldn't testify in court was because they were prone to giddiness and impetuosity. <laughs> Except that these are exactly the people whom God trusts, whom Jesus trusts with his news. It's certainly not how we would do things, but it seems to be the way that God does. And so that's where we left the story on Easter Sunday, with the least credible people possible carrying the most unbelievable news imaginable. 
Jesus is not dead. He is alive, just like he told us he would be. And then the weirdest thing happens. It's not the end of the story. In fact, there's so much story left to write that Luke has to write a whole second book. We call it Acts. It's the second volume of Luke's gospel, and it's where we turn for the next three Sundays. Acts is about how this news about Jesus does the last thing that we would have imagined it to do. It spreads. And it doesn't just spread. It is believed. And it's not just believed. It actually becomes so important that people are willing to change their lives for it. Or perhaps better put, they are changed because of it. Acts is all about how this news spreads from Easter Sunday all the way to us 2,000 years later, about how the gospel goes and how the church grows in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the time that we pick up the story here in Acts chapter 6, the gospel about Jesus is spreading powerfully throughout the city of Jerusalem, and it's starting to gather different kinds of people together to it. It's creating a community of people who sit together who never really did before. It creates a community of rich and poor, of urban elites and rural folks, not two different communities, one community. It creates a community of, of Hellenist Jews who all come from somewhere else, and Hebraic Jews who have lived in town for generations. Let me say it a different way. Because of the news about Jesus, now Aramaic as a second language speakers are sitting right next to Aramaic native speakers. And they didn't have to sit six feet apart, remember. <laughs> now people who dress in the latest high fashions from the Greek agora are sitting right next to the people traditionally dressed, the Hebrew folks. And now those who take their Sunday brunch out share spiritual life with those who always go to grandma's place after church. Maybe what should surprise us is not that a conflict emerges, but that it takes till chapter 6 for it to happen. The conflict begins, Luke tells us, of all places in the church kitchen. The Hellenist, or culturally Greek widows, aren't getting the same care that the culturally Hebrew widows are getting. Their names aren't coming up as often on the prayer lists. They're not getting as many visits. They're often finding that they are last to be served when there isn't quite as much potluck left. At first, it seems like an anomaly. But after a while, it begins to look more like a pattern. Somehow the native folks, the ones with the Hebrew last names, are more visible. They're more on the radar. And a quiet complaint begins to grow. We are being overlooked. Well, now, seminary debates over theology have their place in the scheme of church fights. But for those of us who have been around church for a little while... 
I think we know that it's often the quiet descent coming from the kitchen or the fellowship hall that has the power to do real damage. And just so in this case. But perhaps not for the reason that we would expect. You see, in this conflict between two groups, the church faces a crisis. The crisis is not disagreement, though I'm sure that would have been as uncomfortable for them as it is uncomfortable for any of us. The crisis is that the mission would be lost. You see, the apostles can see that the mission and the message of Jesus are what's at stake here. On the one hand, the church could respond to this conflict between two groups by pouring all of its energy into making sure that it feeds and clothes widows equally. The church could respond by making sure that church is about servicing needs as best as possible. But to do so, the church would run the risk of turning in on itself, attempting only to meet the grumbling demands of constituents. And that would mean losing focus on the fact that the gospel is something that is always going out. The apostles know that it is their job to help the church to be always turning out toward those who are not here. Not yet, anyway. But the apostles also seem to understand that the crisis could swing the other way, too. That instead of meeting the real conflict between the two groups, between the Hebrew and Greek widows, the church could respond by pretending that the conflict isn't all that important. Well, they could respond by saying that the church is somehow spiritual. Spiritual, meaning real earthly conflicts don't matter because we just preach the gospel. We don't do ethnicity. We don't get into cultural differences. We just preach the gospel. We don't talk about the prevalence of police shootings. We don't talk about how we treat sexuality as self-expression. We just preach the gospel. But of course, the problem is that if you are actually preaching the gospel, people of radical differences are going to start sitting next to each other. And it won't be long before you will have a conflict to sort. Because conflicts born of a broken world always follow us here. And so here is this fledgling church community threatened from the outside by opposition that is so real and severe that people are ready to kill them to make it go away. And meanwhile, on the inside, there is this old ethnic and cultural division between Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews, between traditionalists and progressives, between insiders and outsiders, that has found its way into their little six-chapter-old church. By all accounts, this looks to us like the recipe for a conflict bomb. But Luke doesn't highlight this story because it's about the first church split. 
This is actually a story of church growth. Luke lifts this story up to us to teach us where to look for the growth in the life of a church. What would you say are the right conditions for a church to grow? Ample funding, government support, excellent programs and music, unrestricted freedom, likely some mix of all of those things, right? But the strange thing about Acts is that the churches that grow in this book, well, they actually have none of those things. Acts doesn't ever show us a church growing in a great sanctuary or accompanied by cultural power. The church grows where there is opposition and conflict. It makes about as much sense to us, I know, as a flowering grapefruit tree in the dead of a New England winter. But be that as it may, the gospel grows in conflict and in crisis. No, it's not how we do things, but it seems to be the way that God does. Early in his time as a pastor, Eugene Peterson was trying to grow a church. He planted Christ the King Presbyterian in Bel Air, Maryland, and as the pastor and the church planter, Peterson had this front row seat on the new life of a growing young congregation, and he writes about how in the first three years of ministry, there was so much activity and life and vibrancy and verve and pep. All the conditions were right for growth. They'd bought land in a growing suburb. They created a building with a beautiful sanctuary complete with commissioned artwork that would allow them all to glimpse the beauty of God's holiness as they walked in together to worship. They had this incredible sense of purpose. They knew why they were there and what they were about. Peterson writes, we were becoming what we were learning, learning to pray by praying, learning to worship by worshiping, learning the scripture story by living out that story in our neighborhood in Maryland. A lot happened in three years. The exhilaration of our accomplishment was palpable. The church was growing, or at least he thought it was. Because it turns out that one month, four Sundays after the dedication of their sanctuary, attendance dropped off a cliff. The core team, faithful to a T for the last three years, was suddenly gone for three or four Sundays at a time. Peterson went to see them in their homes asking some version of the same question, I've been missing you. Is anything wrong? And he found he was getting some version of the same answer each time. Oh, no, 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 pastor, nothing's wrong. We did it, didn't we? I mean, who would have thought that people like us could have accomplished this, built a church like this? We sure have put our mark on the neighborhood, haven't we? You know, I've never been part of something this significant in my life. Thanks for getting me in on the ground floor. Peterson noticed that men and women who had plunged into the business of planning and organizing for a church were now finding other enthusiasms now that they were a church. Distraught, confused, he took it to his supervisor, Alan. 
the guy in church of church development. And he, he came to him and he said, Alan, this is what's going on. What do I do now? Alan had already answered. Do you know what it was? Start another building campaign. But we don't need another building, Peterson replied. What we need is to grow and mature as a congregation. You don't get it yet. I've been through this before. Start a building campaign. It's the American way. What would you say are the right conditions to grow a church? Luke says, look for the conflicts. What does growth look like in my own life, in your life? Luke says, look for the old wounds and the divisions that haunt you. Look in the place where you don't know what to do next. Oh, we say, well, can't we just fix something? <laughs> I was actually kind of thinking that I might start a new exercise routine. I don't know if it's American or just human, actually. Because a couple hundred years ago, Martin Luther and John Calvin, these great reformers who are in our family history, they said that people by nature, we are, um, they called it, we are theologians of glory. Right? We, we go through life looking for the work of God in grand and beautiful things. We look at numbers, we look at metrics, we look at noise and light. We look at externals for glory. But if we are going to see in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection, if we are going to find God the way he has revealed himself to us, we have to become theologians of the cross. We must learn to look in the light of God's spirit in the places of death and loss, and pain, because that's where God is moving. Or as Stephen told the Sanhedrin in his sermon, God isn't in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. Once upon a time, Stephen recounts in his sermon, God called a people. God was uh, with a man, present to a man who had no future, who was a stranger in a strange land and didn't know where he was going next. And then God led that new people to the promised land, and God was with a people surrounded by people who wanted to kill them. And then God was with David, the youngest and the least likely king you could have ever imagined. It's not how we do things, but it was how God did. And then Solomon built a temple, he says. Solomon led a building campaign, hoping to keep God reliably in the same place. But Stephen continues, God doesn't live in houses we build. If the earth is God's footrest, Isaiah sang, how could you ever hope to fit him in a building? What could you hope to build for me, Yahweh says, if I built everything? No, Stephen continues, Yahweh's name might be on the front door of the temple, but it's not where you're going to find his power and presence anymore. Why? Because Jesus tore down its spiritual meaning in his death on the cross, because he was God's presence in the flesh. Jesus was the one who had all of the things that you were seeking in the temple, and you killed him because you didn't know what you were looking for. 
And this is how we are all forgiven. This is how God's glory and grace comes into our lives through the death of his son at our hands. And it's not how we would have done things, but it is how God does. And just in case we miss the point, Luke shows us again because Stephen is martyred and he dies seeing the glory of Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus visible while he is being stoned to death. Stephen becomes the first martyr. A great deacon, a powerful man is lost that day. What a shame, what a tragedy. Except Luke's point is to say that through his death, this is how the good news gets out of Jerusalem. It's not the way we would have done things, but it is how God does. And the point remains for us. Where do we look for the presence of God in our church? Where do I look for God's growth in my own life? Where can the Spirit of God be found? Stephen, the deacon full of wisdom, and the Holy Spirit tells us he's not in the temple. The Spirit isn't in the language or the campaign or the sanctuary. He's in the church kitchen. Look, look for the people trying to cross deep and profound cultural divides. Look, look for the conflicts. Look for the Christians trying to hold the whole of the gospel together because the Spirit of God is there. And that means that the conflict and the crisis that they face, that you face, that we face, is also a first. The apostles are paying attention to what happens in the kitchen, and they hear this complaint, and they call the first congregational meeting. <laughs> they propose a first to the group of disciples gathered there. They propose a new role, the deacon, the table waiter, church leaders who are both practically and spiritually minded, people called and blessed to make sure that the church is tending to the real needs of its people and those in its wider community. And who are the first deacons? They are people who all have Greek names. They all have Greek names. <laughs> the Spirit gives this little church the wisdom to choose leaders from the group who was underrepresented to make sure that the oversight was corrected. What I am saying is that the ancient cultural bias between Jerusalem Jews and Diaspora Jews is finally confronted in the church and the two are made one. And the result, Luke says, a whole bunch of priests join the church. <laughs> priests! Priests who spent their life standing in the glorious temple, standing between a just and righteous God and a sinful people. Priests who spent their lives trying to care for the needs of people. Priests lived in a beautiful building, but they knew a good thing when they saw one. Which is also good news for us. Because whatever conditions we would like to fabricate for growth in our own lives and our communities, the conditions that we actually have 
are less sanctuary and more church kitchen always. What we have are places in our lives where people struggle to make sense of their differences. What we have are brothers and sisters who are longing to be one in a world of factions and death. What we have is not knowing what the next right thing is. And Luke says, look there. Why? Because the Spirit's there. And that means that this conflict, this crisis that you face, that I face, that we face, is also a first. A first. Something new. Something good. A new beginning. A first. A fresh start. A first. A wound healed. An injustice corrected. A cultural difference understood. Forgiveness given and received. It's not the way that we would do things, but it seems to be the way that God does. Why? Well, because despite our building campaigns for God, Jesus reveals to us that we have always been his. We are his building. Jesus has died, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Jesus has poured out his spirit on us. God has bound himself to his people. He has put his name on you. On you. It's certainly not how we would have done things, but it seems to be the way that God does. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, on Good Friday, everything good about you went into the tomb with you, and we were in despair. This Easter season, we remember that the tomb is open, and everything about you is more true than we can imagine. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Send your Holy Spirit. Pour out that Spirit upon us now, O God, so that as we go from this place, we might know that your resurrection is spiritually real to our hearts. Open our eyes as we leave this place that we might see and seeing understand and understanding believe and believing that we might follow in all faithfulness and obedience in the way that you have made for us through your body. Amen. Brothers and sisters, would you rise in body or in spirit and join us as we sing. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. We seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. Refuse to waste our lives. For you're our joy and prize. To see the captive hearts release. The hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We are your church. 
and sisters gathered in the power and presence of God, you are sent in that same spiritual power and presence. Friends, God has turned his face toward you and he will not change his mind. Now let's be sent together with these words. Pleasant Street, you are disciples of Jesus Christ. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. And friends, go blessed. I invite you to receive it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Let's go sing it.
山。